Hello and welcome to the first edition in 2019 of Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, enjoying the gentle babble of the fountain outside the London Stock Exchange, in contrast to investors who've been picking themselves up and dusting themselves down after the turmoil at the end of 2018. In this episode, we take a closer look at exactly where markets find themselves with a brief detour into the Brexit doldrums and what key the mood music has written in that portfolio managers around the world are humming along to. Certainly, it's not as discordant as you might expect. Listen on to find out more. With me in the studio are three of the multi-asset team back from the Christmas break and already up to their elbows in the markets. And going around the table first to Anna Stubnitska, Head of Global Macro and Investment Strategy. Now, Anna, we always start with a probing personal question to intrigue us all. And I'd like to know, what's the most obscure food that you have tried? I'm going to give you two things because I, I ate that at the same time during the same meal. And that was chicken feet and duck tongues. Not obscure in certain parts of the world, though. Exactly, but obscure for us. Obscure for you. Yeah. Okay, totally good. Uh, also, uh, we have portfolio manager Nick Peters here. Nick, welcome. Uh, what oddities have you dined on? A few, but the one that stands out was on a trip to Vietnam many, many years ago, uh, where I developed a love for pho, the soup, and uh, managed to have cow intestine soup nice. at one point. Sounds delicious. We're recording this early in the morning and I can feel my appetite rising. Uh, finally, James Bateman, Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset. James, welcome to you. Are you a fussy eater or an adventurous one? Um, I, I think my my innate conservatism with uh, investing and, and food is, is probably reasonably um, similar, Richard. But but I would I would say that probably the most interesting thing I've eaten is, is a prawn brain on a bed of fried uh, prawn feet, prawn legs. Um, now, I did eat that with Nick, actually, in Japan once when we were on a business trip. Well, um, Nick so. and, and James, you are what you eat, of course. So um, <laughs> I'm glad we got that sorted. Now, to get us uh, going with the programme proper, uh, James, can you tell us what positioning uh, the group uh, decided for January and uh, what changes there have been in particular? Of course, Richard. So in terms of the main positioning, no change, i.e. overweight equities, overweight fixed income, uh, underweight cash. Within that, only really one nuance of change, which is we have moved overweight to U.S. equities. That's a reasonably controversial move within the team. I'm sure um, we'll come to that. And I, and I think you know what I would say is we're not really saying by the U.S. market. We're much more saying there are areas of the U.S. market that look too attractive not to be overweight, particularly the more value areas, the areas that haven't really moved much over the last 18 to 24 months, where we see upside but equally limited downside. So risk on. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, doke. Well, a quick interlude then in our um, asset allocation discussion to bring in the ugly mess that is Brexit. Uh, we're recording this podcast the morning after the night before when Prime Minister Theresa May suffered an historic defeat on the deal she negotiated with the European Union, but before a vote of confidence in her government uh, that's due this evening. Now, not an awful lot has happened in markets overnight, but James, uh, does this change anything? Or as Theresa May herself might say, nothing has changed. Well, I don't, I don't want to, to borrow the Prime Minister's words, or shall I say the current Prime Minister's words. In fact, we don't know where we'll be um, later today. But, but, but look, I think, you know, in reality, everything has panned out in line with expectations. Um, there was no way this deal was going to be voted through um, at this point. 
uh, the market is sanguine because that was completely in line with expectations. And actually, the magnitude of the de- defeat is broadly irrelevant in terms of, of, of practical implications. I think also the, the, the media clearly loved to, to hype it up as being the biggest parliamentary defeat in history. Clearly, we have a lot more MPs and therefore a lot more people who could potentially rebel than we've had in history. So it's not a very good parallel when we go back to 1924. <laughs> well, thank you for the mathematical analysis. So it was slightly uh, upsetting me when I watched it, watched it last <laughs> night, um, being a historian at heart. So, so look, you know, on that, that perspective, it's in line with expectations. And actually, Theresa May clearly precipitated and wanted a vote of no confidence at that point. So this is in line with whatever strategy we might think she has. Um, So all as expected. Anna, if I come back to the AAG discussion that we had um, this week that you uh, hosted, um, the UK didn't get a mention, not even once. Um, Is it just an irrelevance in investment terms until Brexit has been resolved one way or the other? I don't think so, um, in the sense that uh, we have obviously focused uh, purely on politics uh, uh, since the referendum, and that um, that is what has driven markets, particularly the pound. But I feel very strongly about not losing sight of fundamentals. Um, and I think from a longer-term perspective, and we are long-term investors, um, I think the way to think about the outcome for the UK uh, would be in terms of the so-called production function, what affects uh, the trend growth of the economy. Uh, so productivity gains. Productivity gains, capital and labour. But, um, uh, Nick, if I come to you... Who's going to be putting capital into the UK at the moment uh, when it's all so blurry and vague as to what what direction the country is taking? Yeah, so that's that's a very diff- that's a very easy question to answer. Not many people, right. but um, from an investment perspective, I'd argue that actually UK equities look very cheap now, and actually I have been adding very slowly. I wouldn't admit it at the AAG, but... But here on, in the studio... Here, here it's safer, friends. exactly. It's safer <laughs> to do so. But if you look at domestically focused UK equity stocks, they are trading on single-digit PEs and very close to historic lows. So from, from my perspective, that's a great place to start investing. I've got no idea what's going to happen ultimately, but well, you know, a it's, a good, it's not a punt. It's a good place to start if I, if I come in there, Richard, I think that, you know, I have, I, whilst I, I always worry about investing purely on a valuation basis, um, because we come back to sort of Keynes's in the, in the long run, we're all dead. And yes, it will come right, but maybe too long. I think, I think Nick has a point here. And I, and I think the point is that when we look at the, um, the behaviour of non-UK, outside of UK investors, there has been virtually no purchasing of UK equities for a lengthy period. And that's money on the sidelines. And at some point, there will be a trigger that brings it back in, and that will lead to a, a reasonably sharp, I suspect, re-rating of UK stocks. So I think, you know, as a, as a dispassionate investor, the fact we're in the UK is almost irrelevant here. As a dispassionate investor, it's very attra- there's some very attractively valued um, stocks, quite a lot of very attractively valued stocks, and you can see that there's been a technical factor in terms of lack of demand for them, that at some point is like to revert. So it does seem um, an attractive place to be at the margin increasing. Unfashionable, but uh, but perhaps uh, an interesting place to be investing. Well, the debate kicks off again this afternoon after Prime Minister questions, and then, astonishingly, a debate on a private member's bill which would ban post boxes from being built too close to the ground. I, for one, shall be glued to the box. Now, beyond Brexit, uh, breathe a sigh of relief, but if you've been looking at the data, it's been a pretty miserable start to the year. What does 2019 hold? Um, we'll discuss it here in the studio in a minute, but first I caught up with research analyst Ian Sampson, who puts together Fidelity's own leading indicator. 
Ian, thanks for taking the time to talk to us now. Uh, you produce the fly, Fidelis's leading indicator every month, yes. and it's making pretty miserable reading. Do you want to explain what's gone on this month and just how bad it is if you look back historically? Certainly. Well, this month, the Fidelis leading indicator has moved even further into the bottom left of its cycle tracker, which is precisely where you don't want to be. It means growth heading below trend and also decelerating. Uh, in fact, it's actually consistent with growth heading to the lowest level relative to trend since 2011-2012, which um, market participants will remember was not a particularly happy time. And really the key driver this month of incremental uh, bearishness, even though uh, across the board signals aren't good, that the real incremental driver has been global trade data. Now, there had been worrying signs for, for quite a while, but really the, the death knell has come from China over the past two months, where trade data has been very weak. Death knell, though, that's, that's serious language. <laughs> well, it could be, a, oddly for death, relatively short-lived, and let me explain why. <laughs> Um, th what you saw was a, a large um, front-loading activity ahead of the proposed escalation in U.S.-China tariffs on January the first, um, and November was really the the deadline to get your shipping out. And so supply chains have been working in overtime to to get this trade all done in time. Now, of course, the, those tariffs were never actually implemented, but still, the the panic buying in advance, of course. That boosted uh, things in November. Yes, and, uh, well, at least October. And then you saw some payback in November and even more payback uh, over the past month. Um, now, I think there's more to it than just that. That probably does overstate the weakness, uh, but the impact could be here for some time and there's other reasons to be negative on, on both global trade over the next three to six months, uh, but also just global activity, as the fly would suggest. So in summary, um, your forecast based on uh, the fly base and all the data that's going in to make up that picture um, is that uh, the beginning of 2019 is going to look pretty weak. Yes, global activity will continue to soften from, in some places, already quite a weak uh, place that they ended 2018 in. A any uh, sucker that we can draw from uh, the data at all? So after a very weak run in German industrial data, uh, at the end of uh, the year could look very grisly in, in Europe. Uh, we've started to see a tentative bottoming out. Um, so if that continues, uh, that would really help. And is that based on demand within Europe or coming from Asia? Certainly the weakness seen earlier in the year was uh, as a result of Asia and emerging markets slowing in particular. Uh, but in fact, the relative resilience might be a result of uh, the Eurozone actually holding up domestically a little bit better. Right, back in the studio. Um, Anna, it sounds and looks pretty dreadful, but you're still confident that we're not heading into a recession, or at least not, not yet. Well, I think it depends what country you look at. There is a lot of talk right now about uh, uh, 
almost an imminent U.S. recession, and I think the probability of that it's, is very low. Yes, we're seeing a slowdown uh, from uh, very high unsustainable rates of growth to somewhere perhaps around trend, um, 1.82% growth in the U.S. Um, but uh, uh, the economy is still pretty strong. I think the consumer has the support from the tightening labor market and uh, uh, positive real wages. The savings rate is high and the there is definitely room for adjustment on the consumer side. So we're seeing manufacturing slowdown in the States, but you're saying it's the consumer, which is that makes up the bulk of the economy there, that yeah. uh, there's going to keep things ticking over. Yeah, consumption makes up uh, 70% uh, of the gross domestic product in the US. So uh, it's very important. If you remember back in 2015, manufacturing was essentially in recession, but the economy still delivered positive rates of growth uh, because of consumer. And James, you're, you're still positive on the US. I well, you must be. You've, you've yeah. just gone out, uh, long. Well, the team have. Mm. Um, collective decision, clearly. Collective X, Nick, but collective. Um, and, 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 you know, I think it comes to a couple of things. One is everyone always um, underestimates the resilience of the US economy um, and the resilience of the US consumers, number one. Number two, I think, is Trump worries about the market. We know that. He may have taken his mind off it for a while. He may have focused, started focusing on other things. But the reality is Trump doesn't want a protracted bear market. He wants a bull market. And therefore, at some point, something more positive is going to come out of the White House that supports markets probably. And therefore, you're betting against two pretty major things, the resilience of the US um, consumer and, and Trump in terms of US market direction if you're not long at the moment. Um, but Trump hasn't actually achieved a lot of the things that he wants, like a wall, for example. So you're, you're putting well, a lot of faith in so, his so some, things, some things are easier than others. And I think, you know, the, the reality is further tax cuts, um, fiscal changes, um, you know, those are things that are massively stimulative. And actually, he could announce them for something happening two years out. That would push markets up, markets be remarkably positive, and they could end up reversed before they actually come through. So who knows? But but you know, there's a lot of options on the table for him. Yes, and thank you, James. That's a very positive view of, of the US. Which brings me to Nick. You're not positive on the US. Why not? Why why have you stuck with a um, uh, uh, a negative view on, on on the United States? So so to my mind, is well, so you know, this is a relative game for us, and I just find markets outside of the US far more attractive than the US itself. So the US market, we all know, is very expensive uh, in terms of ratings and valuation. Obviously cheaper now on 15, 16 times compared to the end of last year, um, or sort of Q2, Q3 last year. But if I look at other areas, such as I've mentioned the UK, but emerging markets where I'm overweight, the ratings there are far more attractive. And I also think that um, you know if we have a weakening dollar, then that's going to be supportive for areas like uh, emerging markets as well. So it's 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 not as if I don't like the the US. So no Americans terms. listening to this shouldn't take uh, nobody should take <laughs> offence. They shouldn't take offence. <laughs> it's just there are more attractive areas elsewhere. Okay, uh, Anna, can we come to Europe because um, that seems a bit of a risky bet at the moment? Um, I mean, the ECB doesn't have an awful lot of firepower left, does it? Um, no, although that's not what they would admit, but I think uh, none of us would want to be in Draghi's shoes right now. Um, and to M- perhaps, Maybe he doesn't, he hasn't got much longer. <laughs> perhaps just to um, extend my answer to your question about recession, that that's where I worry. I, w- I worry about the recession in the euro area and the risks of that are much, much, much higher than in the US. Um, now, 
uh, it's true that uh, domestic demand is still strong, and Ian mentioned it briefly. But I think uh, the deterioration on the external side is still quite significant, driven by the China cycle. Um, and that is clearly showing up uh, in the data, particularly in Germany. Some of that is driven by one of factors, uh, such as uh, regulation in the auto sector. Uh, but most of it, I think, is due to the continuous deterioration in the external cycle that will ultimately start spilling into the domestic data. Well, because the one of the graphs that um, was discussed at the AG was um, the automobile manufacturing uh, in, in Germany. And it was shocking, an absolute plummeting line. And it's not, ju- again, it's not just because of the changes uh, to regulation. It is the demand from China, which is really key. Uh, where does this leave the ECB? As you say, uh, not many options. Of course, they can go back to the old tools uh, or the tested tools, QE. Perhaps the flaw in terms of um, interest rates has not probably been tested. Yes, we can go lower, below uh, minus 40 basis points. But I do think at some point uh, they should, at least that's what I think they should do rather than what they might do, um, is to put more pressure on the governments. They have created the environment in which um, the governments uh, didn't really have to worry about supporting the economy. So um, saying to governments, uh, we've done our bit um, yeah. with, uh, with, with monetary policy. It's over to you with fiscal uh, stimulus um, that you need to take the pain for this. Yes, exactly. And the monetary policy um, is cyclical, uh, but it should really work together with, with fiscal and together with structural policy to achieve better growth outcomes. Um, and I think now it's really down to governments to do that. Uh, now, the path there will not be smooth for sure, uh, but I think ultimately it's going to be a much more effective move from the ECB. Right, so it's quite a, a complex picture around the world, and we're not um, not sure which way things are are, are going um, for sure. But to get a, a clearer sense of how portfolio managers, not just here at Fidelity but beyond, are thinking at the moment, I spoke to Ricardo Muschio. He meets regularly with a wide range of fund managers in Asia and emerging markets to analyse their performance and views, and he spotted some interesting trends. So, Ricardo, could you just summarise then the mood of the people that you've been talking to? Because, uh, you know, the headlines look so miserable, and yet um, that's not what you've been picking up. In Asia and emerging market equities, at the very margin, the mood is to increase risk in, uh, in portfolios. There's been a big correction in uh, Chinese equities in 2018. Uh, that was a combination of an, a couple of factors, the strong dollar on one side, and then trade wars, and also, most importantly, a domestic slowdown in China. And all the region is linked to China. But n- none of that's changed. It's all looking pretty miserable. Um, but you're saying that uh, some of the PMs are ready to take on risk again. They're, they're seeing the upside. Yes, Richard. So in order to make money in, in, in markets, skilled investors need to distinguish, well, need to understand what's factor in prices. So that's very important. If market prices uh, are already discounting a slowdown, that is, so that will be already baked into the prices. So uh, chances are that uh, we have seen the worst in, uh, in equity prices and chances are that going forward we're going to see a stabilization and uh, an uptick. So now is the time to buy. But you're saying this is just at the margin? When I say at the margin, I mean the direction of travel 
has been to increase risk. So a couple of uh, value investors in Asia, uh, they were already overweight uh, China, for, for example, by you know 10% or so. They've moved from 10 to 5, and they have reduced cash from 7, 8 down to 2. Actually, one value uh, investor in Asia has actually reopened uh, his own strategy to existing investors so, because he wanted to deploy more capital because there, there is an abundance of invest investment ideas there. Not only the cash in the fund came down, but he also reopened the fund. I mean, that's quite a strong signal that tells us the opportunity set is, uh, is quite good now in China. And, you know, investors are, have been uh, talking about, you know, earnings downgrades. Earnings downgrades, they see them coming, but if they are in, the, you know, between 3 and 4%, that's already baked into the price. I think they are more in the camp of a, a, yeah, a mild slowdown, not more, uh, not more than that. A mild slowdown, not more than that. That's all pretty encouraging, isn't it, James? It is, Richard. One of the things that always interests us with active managers is, is, is how they use cash. And I'm a cynic about active managers and cash because I think they're paid to be invested, not to, not to keep money on the sidelines. Um, but nonetheless, um, some do vary their cash allocations a lot. Um, and it's a reasonably good indicator of, of short to medium term uh, likely market moves um, when cash moves up and down. And, and you are seeing this general move, as Ricardo says, of, of cash being deployed into new ideas. I know Nick talked about emerging markets, and clearly Ricardo was. Um, emerging markets is an area we probably as a team still don't have a complete consensus on much as the US. You know, I'm at the more bullish side of, of EM simply on valuation grounds. And, and, and you know, I think the active managers are reflecting that very effectively, which is that there are a lot of stocks that are very attractively priced and almost priced for a, for a, for a, an economic recession that isn't particularly likely to come, certainly isn't in many people's central case. So yes, um, you know, the, there is material stock level upside, um, which suggests we're not really at the end of the cycle at the moment. And, and Nick, as a portfolio manager of portfolio managers, uh, does what Ricardo um, was saying, does that does that chime with your own views? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, you know, he said it that effectively it's at the margin, but to me, there is a significant move away from the styles of investing that we saw last year, particularly growth style, and managers are now moving more towards looking at value style or value stocks, cyclicals, financials, because that's where they think the next relative run, relative performance will come from. Well, of course, the, the FANG stocks, the tech stocks, uh, they took a real tumble at the end of the year, and that let some of the steam out of the markets. There was uh, a relief rally that kicked in. But Anna, at some point, the markets will take a closer look at US data. What, what happens then? Well, I think the markets have started looking at the data. Um, there was uh, this feeling that uh, the growth was strong and that this can last for a long time. And then at the end of last year, um, we started seeing the first signs of the slowdown. And uh, in particular, the, the latest uh, uh, PMI, this is the measure of business confidence in the US for December, uh, showed quite a significant drop. Uh, and uh, 
that uh, spooked the markets to some extent. So absolutely markets are already focusing uh, on the data, on, on the Fed, of course, as always, and on, on the shift uh, to a more dovish stance recently. Um, but um, I do think that uh, there is too much fear uh, priced in, fear about recession. Um, and that, that's why uh, I think perhaps the markets, um, it will take a bit of time, but, but the markets will realize that uh, actually the economy is still on a relatively stronger footing, at least for this very, very late stage of the cycle. Um, sorry, and we've got the earnings uh, season coming up as well. So it's going to be very interesting to dovetail the top-down data that we get with what companies are saying. So management, we can forget about the results for 2018, but it, what the management talk about in terms of the outlook, um, I think that's also going to have a significant bearing on market direction for the next few weeks or so. Good to know. Okay, well, we are now out of time, which means it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Uh, Anna, let me come to you first of all. Your hot cakes, please. I like the Japanese year, and I think uh, the fundamentals are supportive. Uh, valuation is also supportive. But most importantly, it has uh, the, the safe haven characteristics that would just be good to have in, in any portfolios right now. Um, I like that perhaps versus the uh, US dollar. Uh, my hot potato is um, uh, US treasuries, uh, perhaps a little bit, uh, well, controversial, but again, given my view on the US and on the Fed, I think yields are way too low for where the economy is and for where the Fed uh, might be in a few months' time. Uh, so I would... Um, uh, I would choose that as my hot potato. Anna, thank you very much. Uh, Nick, your hot cakes. Uh, for my hot cake, given I've had uh, James's support, I'm going to go for UK equities. Um, when I see uh, income funds or dividend funds paying out yielding north of 7%, that to me is a great starting point. So um, that's where uh, the hot cake would be. And your hot potato? It was a bit more tricky, actually, because I don't think there are too many areas, US equities aside, uh, that are too expensive so I've opted for the Aussie dollar uh, where our models are suggesting fundamentally looks expensive and the economy is struggling and housing markets rolling over. Jolly good okay and James. So my hot cake um, purely to Ryle Nick clearly is going to be uh, US equities but US value um, and I'm just concerned that there is going to be a massive re-rating within the US market you know even if the overall S&P and Russell 2000 stay flat um, within that, you could see 10, 20, 30% um, style deviation, and therefore you could actually see phenomenally strong returns from value stocks, traditional value stocks. And there's a lot of ways, both passive and active, to get, or smart beta and active, to get exposure there that I, I would think would um, would be a good position. Then hot potato, I'm going to I'm going to go um, slightly dramatically, I think, with German equities, and and that kind of builds slightly on on what what Anna was saying, but I'm worried about a couple of things. I'm worried that that um, you know Germany is the backbone of Europe. And, that, and actually, t traditionally, when we've had panic around Europe, it's the periphery that's sold off the most. And I think um, Brexit could actually weigh on Germany 
um, not just practically, but also in terms of sentiment. Secondly, I think the re- and the reason I think it will do that is there are a lot of headwinds facing Germany at the moment, um, and the autos um, are just this great example. Um, and we're seeing that we're seeing that in the UK with Jaguar Land Rover as well. That the impact of Chinese slowdown on autos is enormous. I don't think that's all been all worked through in in the German market. Um, the tariff risk is there, and as Anna said, I think actually the market has, has now adopted the narrative that that new regulations around pollution have driven all the price action and all the issues. That isn't. There's much more fundamental to worry about there as well. So so I'm pretty worried about um, German equities at the moment. Uh, affected by the periphery, with the UK being on the periphery of, uh, <laughs> of Europe now. Okay, well, um, thank you all very much indeed. Uh, we're out of time. I hope that's given you listening uh, an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like any more detail, it's published in full on our website. And if you'd like to discuss anything we've covered, just ask your Fidelity contact. Thanks very much indeed to my guests, Anna, Nick, Ian, Ricardo and James. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back in February. But for now, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.